We're continuing today in our series, Distinctives of a Gospel-Shaped Church. And I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy chapter 5. Uh, we're going to look at a rather lengthy section of the Scripture. Uh, the first part is uh, fairly brief in just two verses. And then the last part is in verse 3 through verse 16 in a message entitled, Godly Relationships in the Church. Now, as we come to 1 Timothy chapter 5, it marks a shift in focus. The shift is from the importance of personal conduct in life and ministry to advice on how Timothy was to relate to individuals who comprise the various groups in the church, the various ages and life stages in the church. And the idea is that we are to relate to different people in the church as we would to members of our own family. And according to the Bible, we are members of God's household or God's family. Our church vision statement is growing God's forever family. And I would certainly pray that it's more than a catchy statement. The idea of church family points to the depth of life that we share together in Christ. And in that, uh, we are to treat everyone in the church in those familial relationships, brother, sister, mother, father, and so on. Jesus said that whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother, Matthew chapter 12 and verse 50. Now, as Christians, we sit side by side uh, in the church each week, and sometimes we don't realize the depth of the relationships that we share as spiritual family in Christ. In fact, we experience the joys and the sorrows of life together as we live for Jesus. And a church family supports one another during the difficulties of life, as well as celebrates together when good things are happening, when joyful things are happening. So we share in every aspect of faith and life together. That's what it means to be a part of God's church and a local church family. Church family also has the opportunity to disciple and shepherd one another. So we're able to spur each other on toward Christ-like love and good deeds. These things reflect that God's power is at work in our lives. And the Bible provides specific guidance on how we're to treat other believers. We're to treat one another with love and honor. We're to do good toward one another. We're to inspire one another toward faith. And because we are sinful and broken people, God gives us specific guidance. He gives us an abundance of wisdom on how to navigate even difficult situations in relationships. So what I want to do is I want to look at three characteristics of godly relationships in the church. The first two being in verses 1 and 2. And here's what the scripture says. Don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. So the first characteristic of godly relationships in the church is that godly relationships in the church should be characterized by honor. Look again at the first part of verse 1. He says, don't rebuke an older man, but exhort him as a father. Now, you remember that Timothy was a younger pastor. He had a particular challenge of shepherding people faithfully, uh, but with the proper respect for their years 
and the presumed wisdom of the older men. And I can tell you from uh, years past when I was a younger pastor that that is not always an easy thing to do. But what I also found out was that as I was able to shepherd and serve with men who were much older than me, many of them who could have been my father or my grandfather, when proper respect was shown toward them and there was a good relationship in the Lord, even when we dealt with more difficult circumstances, most all the time those older men were cooperative and were a significant blessing to me along the way as I served the church. And here was Timothy serving the church at Ephesus in a difficult task, but the scripture is noting here the respect that he was to have toward older men as he dealt with them. Now, older man or older men, I think, is the best translation here because the word elder is used in a technical sense in the pastoral epistles, specifically for an overseer in the church. And then the older men or older man wording also parallels with the wording of older women that's a little bit further into the passage. So I think there's a distinction between the age of the men that he was dealing with and their status in life versus specifically elders or overseers and how he was to relate to them. And I think that respectful people in all of life will show honor to those who are aged. In fact, respecting older people was standard in ancient wisdom and social culture and custom. It was a part of what they did, much like respecting your parents, treating them as if they are your parents or uh, your peers as brothers and sisters. That's worthy behavior in the Lord. Proverbs 16 and verse 31 says, uh, the silver head is a crown of glory if it is found in the way of righteousness. So gray or silver hair should be a crown of glory. And what that crown of glory should indicate is age, experience, and maturity that goes along with that. But from a spiritual perspective, it also should indicate greater holiness and wisdom and love for Jesus. Now, admittedly, that's not always the case. Just because someone is older or because they have gray or silver hair does not mean necessarily that their spiritual growth and maturity has tracked along with their life growth and maturity, but it should be that way. So if you're in that stage of life, you should be asking yourself if your wisdom and your love for Jesus and your uh, ministry in the church complements your age, or to state it more directly, is your life an example of godliness, is an example to those who are coming behind you. The ancient world had great respect for those who had risen to old age. Uh, Cicero wrote this, he said, it is then the duty of a young man to show deference to his elders and to attach himself to the best and most approved of them so as to receive the benefit of their counsel and their influence. For the inexperience of youth requires the practical wisdom of age to strengthen and direct it. Aristotle wrote to all older persons too, one should give honor appropriate to their age by rising to receive them and finding seats for them and so on. Now I grew up in a Southern culture and in that Southern culture, uh, in the time that I grew up in at least, uh, respect for older people was highly valued. And not only was it highly valued, it was also very much expected. 
Uh, we would never, for example, under any circumstance, have referred to a much older person by their first name alone. If we had permission to use their first name, we would put with it Mr. or Mrs. or Miss before their name if we knew them well enough to do that, or we would simply refer to them as Mr. whatever their last name was or Mrs. and use their last name. We were also taught growing up uh, that uh, you should say yes, sir, and no, sir, and yes, ma'am, and no, ma'am, and even though I'm not among the young, I still do that out of force of habit. And a lot of times people look at me like, what, what are you, why are you saying that? Or even sometimes older people will say something along those lines of, of why we'd be saying that. It's simply because it's, it's so ingrained in me um, as a part of how I was raised, the importance of respecting people who have gone before you. And also, if an older person would come into a room, uh, younger people would get up and give them their seat. It was not any question about it. It was a sign of respect. And I realize some of these specifics are cultural, and all the cultural specifics won't be the same in every context, but the principle remains. However it's applied, the principle remains. I would also say that respect for older people is also backed up by the Bible. Leviticus 19 and verse 32 says, You shall rise before the gray-headed and honor the presence of an old man and fear your God, for I am the Lord. An ungodly generation devalues and dismisses older people and at times idolizes younger people. That should not be the case in the church. So Paul says to Timothy, don't rebuke an older man. Now it's important to see here that the verb for rebuke that he uses is not the normal word for rebuke in the New Testament. In fact, it's the only place that this specific word is used and it literally means not to strike at. And the reason that's important is because what it is indicating is a severe censure. Uh, the admonition is, Timothy, don't attack older men with words, but treat them with respect. Now, he's not saying if something is unwise or wrong or somebody's out of line that it should not be addressed, but rather he's saying, don't be harsh about your rebuke. Don't give a strong censure to an older man that would show a lack of respect. Yes, you can address the issue. You can challenge a poor idea or a wrong way of behavior or thinking, but don't do it in a way that dishonors the person that you're dealing with. And in general, rebuke is the very important responsibility of a pastor. Uh, rebuke means to point out something that's wrong, either in thinking or in conduct. And Paul made the importance of, rebu of rebuke very clear. In Titus 2 and verse 15, he says to the elder, rebuke with all authority and let no one despise you. Further into this chapter that we're looking at in verse 20, uh, Timothy was instructed that there are times when not only should an elder or a pastor or an overseer be rebuked, but there are times when that person should be rebuked publicly for their sin. And the instruction is not to never rebuke anyone, but don't rebuke in a harsh and an attacking way, but instead exhort him as a father. The exhortation is encouragement to do what's right, but it's in a kinder and more loving and more considerate way. Uh, it's similar to a coach that would help an athlete 
uh, improve themselves in some area of their competition. John Chrysostom said this, he said, rebuke is in its own nature offensive, particularly when it's addressed to an older man and when it proceeds from a young man. There is a threefold show of forwardness. By the manner and the mildness of it, therefore, he should soften it, for it is possible to reprove without offense if one will only make a point of this, but it requires great discretion, but it may be done. So we know in the church, admonishment and correction is sometimes needed irrespective of age. The issue is how it is administered is very important. Jesus indicated in Matthew 18 and verse 15 that we are to reprove our brother with the view of winning him. Now, the word reprove that indicates a rebuke in a milder sense was a legal term that was used of a lawyer arguing his case in court. Think about what a wise lawyer would do, a wise attorney. They will carefully think through what they want to say and how they want to say it because they want to convince the judge or the jury, if there is one, of the truthfulness of their case. So if we're going to reprove or to rebuke someone for something that is unbiblical and just wrong, then we need to think carefully about our intent. Is it really to win our brother? Our approach, is it the right way? And our words, are they helpful rather than hurtful? Hebrews 3 and verse 13 says, Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So church, you are to steward your time to know the truth, exercise wisdom, live in holiness, and be spiritually minded. Earn the respect belonging to age, and in that be an example to all. I think about some of the examples in Scripture, Jacob and Samuel and Elisha and Jehoiada, they all lived in such a way that righteousness and honor uh, and respect was given to them. You remember Elihu when he deferred uh, to Job and his three friends. Uh, they were older than he was, but they did not speak wisely, so eventually he had to rebuke them and call them out in the situation. Solomon, the king, for example, compared an old rich king who is foolish to a young poor child who is wise, and he concluded that the wise child is better than a foolish old man. Zacharias and Elizabeth were a godly older couple in the New Testament. They were righteous before God, and they wore silver crowns of time-honored hair. And what did God do for them? He gave them John the Baptist, the greatest man who was ever born of women, according to Jesus. And then Simeon was an old man who wanted to live to see Christ. There are all these examples of these godly people who were examples that others could look to and follow after in their righteousness. So I say to you, godly relationships in the church should be characterized by honor. It ought to be that type of culture within our fellowship. And then the second characteristic is that godly relationships in the church should be characterized by purity. Look at the second part of verse 1. He references then younger men as brothers. Verse 2, older women as mothers, and the younger women as sisters with all purity. The reference to younger men as brothers carries through from the idea 
of how to treat older men. Younger men may be exhorted or treated somewhat more directly, but they're to be treated as friends in the work of the gospel. They're co-laborers to get together in the work of God's church. Older women are to be treated as mothers with respect and the honor that is due their age. So Timothy was to treat older women with the honor that he would show to his own mother. Uh, in his conclusion in the book of Romans, for example, in Romans chapter 16 and verse 13, Paul is giving all the greetings, the different greetings to the church. And you remember that he greets, uh, says to greet Rufus, and it says, chosen in the Lord. And then he says this, also his mother and mine. Now, obviously, Rufus's mother was, was not Paul's mother, but he referred to her as such in the Lord. Why would he do that? Because she was a woman who had been a spiritual mother to him, evidently, and he wanted to honor her as such. And there's a great opportunity within the church fellowship, within the church body, for those of you who are older women, to be spiritual mothers by your love, by your example, by your encouragement, by your prayers, all these things. God's given you the opportunity to help provide this healthy culture within the church as spiritual mothers. And then younger women are be, to be treated as sisters with all purity. This phrase, all purity, literally means absolute purity. Now, this is another word that is used uniquely here in this passage. Uh, it, the noun translated as purity is found only here and then in 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 12. With all purity would indicate with a pure heart and with a mind free from immoral thoughts. Now, obviously, this is referring specifically, at least in part, uh, to sexual purity, but it is not only limited to that. The phrase in all purity means in complete conformity to the moral law of God, and it's not restricted only to sexual purity. Now, this also was not a one-sided challenge here. There evidently was a lack of purity among some of the women who were associated with the Ephesian church, which also raised its own special problems. So the directive here, as it relates to relationships, uh, leadership, younger women in the church, also says that the younger women in the church have the responsibility to live with purity and to present themselves in such a way that it's a two-way street as people relate to one another. 2 Timothy 3 and verse 6 actually refers to gullible women who are overwhelmed by their sins and led astray by a variety of passions. So there were some in the church uh, from the women's perspective who were having a difficulty with this. And Paul has given Timothy specific instruction on how to deal with all of the younger women. So pastors in the church should avoid putting themselves in situations where their propriety could be called into question. Not only pastors, but all men in the church ultimately should be careful not to put themselves into situations where their propriety could be called into question. In fact, I believe that a faithful leader in the church, a faithful pastor, uh, can have a serious demeanor about them, spiritually speaking, and approach to all people that is respectful 
and there will be no question about his character. He shouldn't be pushing the edges of what's acceptable or what might be appropriate to say or what situation he might put himself into that could raise an issue. And for all of us as Christian men, we should be careful that we are guarding ourselves, guarding our families, guarding our testimonies. And we are to minister in the church to younger women as sisters. So in other words, show them proper care and concern, just like you would to your own sister. Help when you can, protect when it's needed, guide as opportunities arise, serve together in the ministry to move the church of the Lord forward. And there can be a sense of a warm brotherly love with no impure intention or possibility. And listen, you know it when you see it. Ladies, you especially know it when you see it. You know how people are coming across to you. You know how they're looking at you. You know how they're talking to you. You know what the indications are. And you can tell if a person is safe spiritually and practically by how they relate to you. And this is a good word for those of you who are Christians out in marketplace jobs as well. That if you're a Christian and you represent Jesus Christ, then you ought to be a safe person. You ought to be a person who shows such respect to other women and to their circumstance in life and to their family that there's no question about some type of impure intention that is coming across from you. And I think this is just rich instruction for God's family overall. 1 Timothy 3 and verse 15 indicates that church family knows how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. It's the church of the living God. It's the pillar and the foundation of the truth. So the instruction spans age and gender, and it focuses on the work of God going forward unhindered. In the church, we are to show intergenerational respect for one another. And godly relationships in the church should be characterized by purity. I'll also say at a practical level that if we're taking responsibility for ourselves and we're doing what we're supposed to be doing, there's not an eye of suspicion toward other people. There's not an unrealistic expectation that we put up toward them. We're going to assume until we see otherwise that they have a spirit of purity toward us and that their motivation is right and that they too want to honor God. And that's how we should be coming across in both our thoughts, our motivations, our words, and our actions. And then third, godly relationships in the church should be characterized by care for one another. I'm going to pick back up reading now and read the longer part of the passage beginning in verse 3, which deals with a little bit more specific area of ministry. Support widows who are genuinely in need. But if any widow has children or grandchildren, let them learn to practice godliness toward their own family first and to repay their parents, for this pleases God. The widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. However, she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command this also so that they will be above reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his own family, 
especially for his own household. He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. No widow is to be enrolled on the list for support unless she's at least 60 years old, has been the wife of one husband, and is well known for good works. That is, if she has brought up children, shown hospitality, washed the saints' feet, helped the afflicted, and devoted herself to every good work. Verse 11, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when they are drawn away from Christ by desire, they want to marry, and will therefore receive condemnation because they have renounced their original pledge. At the same time, they also learn to be idle, going from house to house. They're not only idle, but are also gossips and busybodies, saying things they shouldn't say. Therefore, I want younger women to marry, have children, manage their households, and give the adversary no opportunity to accuse us. For some have already turned away to follow Satan. If any believing woman has widows in her family, let her help them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may help widows in genuine need. Now, there's a lot going on here, but basically the church as a whole is commanded to help widows who are among them. Now, the word honor that is used here describes respect. And you'll notice this pattern here that is continuing in Paul's thinking. He's saying, listen, you, you, need, to, you need to honor one another and you need to show respect for those who are older. You need to relate to each other in these familial relationships in the church. And now he comes back to a specific area of ministry need and he's describing something that is essentially respect. Now, in the early church in the book of Acts, evidently they understood this responsibility because in Acts chapter 6, it tells of the disciples when they were increasing in number. And as they were increasing in number, they had a complaint that arose among the Hellenists against the Hebrews. And the issue was that their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. So it was a very specific context, specific situation, specific problem. But the early church stepped forward and they cared for the widows in their midst. James, who was an early church leader in Jerusalem, would later write in James 1 and verse 2, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now, note here the qualification. The qualification is widows who are genuinely in need. Those who are truly widows. Those who are really widows. What's he saying? He's talking about people who are genuinely left alone without anyone. Paul describes her in a bit more detail in verse 5. The widow who is truly in need and left all alone has put her hope in God and continues night and day in her petitions and prayers. So what he's describing are people who are left with no earthly family at all. They're all alone. And in those days, there was no life insurance. There, was, there were no retirement accounts. Uh, there was no Social Security or Medicare. So basically, there were no social safety nets. Women did not own property. So if a woman's husband died, whatever he had would be entrusted to her sons if she had them. And then they, in turn, were given the responsibility to care 
for their mother. If she had no children and her father was living, she would actually return back home to live with him. And God's law gave instruction on that. Otherwise, if she didn't have somebody around her who could help care and meet her needs, uh, then she would be left in extreme poverty. So it's obvious that the plight of widows was extremely difficult. And according to verses 4 through 6, families have an obligation toward one another. If a widow has family, they've got a responsibility to see about her. And the character of a qualified widow is that she puts her hope in God and she continues in petition and prayer night and day. So she's described as a person who dedicates herself in service to the Lord, much like the prophetess uh, widow Anna in Luke chapter 2. Others, by contrast, seek their own pleasure and are spiritually empty. So again, Paul's addressing a particular situation. He talks about younger women later on and how some of them were causing their own problems. Then he talks about some of the, the widows who maybe were not in the situation they should have been in spiritually. And he makes this point that their families are obligated to help them if they're in the Lord. And what he does is he repeats the theme that he used in verse 4 toward caring for members of your own household. Now, it's obvious that that we can't uh, care, one person can't care for every single relative. But even unbelievers in Paul's day understood that it's a child's responsibility to make sure that his widowed mother is properly cared for. And those who fail to do so have denied the faith. A commitment to follow Christ is connected to a concern for family. The desire to care for your family should flow from your commitment to follow Christ. And there's a very stark warning here that those who fail to do so are worse than unbelievers. Now, more practical matters are addressed beginning in verses 9 and 10. Widows may be put on a list if they meet three main qualifications. The first is she must be over the age of 60. There were reasons for keeping the younger widows off the list. He refers to those. Younger widows likely have the desire to remarry. Uh, They're dealing with other life issues. So she must be over 60 years old. Realize also in those days that uh, many people were beginning not to live even to that age. So these are dealing with older people uh, in the culture. Second requirement and qualification is that she must have been faithful to her husband. Like that, that actually matters. That's part of the qualification. And then the third is she must be well known for her good deeds in her home, church, community, child raising, hospitality, and service to others. So here's the bottom line. The church ought to be helping widows who are in genuine need. You ask, well, how does that apply to us today in the church in the 21st century? Well, in a lot of parts of the world where the needs are so great and the resources are so few, the application of this passage would basically be exactly the same. There'd be very little difference because women do not have many of the things that they have in the West in other parts of the world. They might be put in situations where this would very much describe them and there'd be very little variation as far as the application of the passage. But I think in our context, the needs are often more spiritual in nature 
because most widows in our context have family connections, at least of some sort. Uh, Most also have some type of financial provision uh, that they've prepared for. And the situation is a little bit different for us than it would have been at Ephesus, but the need to care for them is the same, uh, whatever those needs are. And for example, our deacon ministry maintains a list of both widows and widowers. Uh, The widower's part is certainly not a scriptural uh, requirement, uh, but it's something that we want to do to be able to care uh, for those who are alone uh, in our church family. And that deacon ministry focuses on spiritual needs and prayer and encouragement. And from time to time, as those practical needs come up, uh, they address those as well. But here's, here's the, the real focus, I think. We are to care for one another in the church. We're to be mindful of needs, particularly of widows and orphans, as James references uh, in his writing. And we're to have such a culture that we're genuinely looking out for each other. Why? Because we're family. And family loves one another, uh, as imperfect as we are. Sometimes we put up with each other, whatever the case might be, but we're still family. And spiritually, that is so true. And it's important for our spiritual growth in life as well. Some of you who are a little bit older remember the name uh, Lee Iacocca. Uh, Lee Iacocca was the, the famed uh, chairman of Chrysler Corporation years ago. And he once asked the legendary coach, Vince Lombardi, what it takes to make a winning team. And in the book entitled Iacocca, uh, he records Lombardi's answer. And Lombardi said, there are a lot of coaches with good ball clubs who know the fundamentals and have plenty of discipline, but they still don't win the game. Then you come to the third ingredient. If you're going to play together as a team, you've got to care for one another. You've got to love each other. Each player has to be thinking about the guy next to him and saying to himself, if I don't block the man in front of me, that guy's going to get his legs broken. I have to do my job well in order that he can do his. And then Lombardi said this, the difference between mediocrity and greatness is the feeling these guys have for each other. And I would make a, an application to this in the church as well. We can have all the fundamentals right. We can have the right doctrine. We can have good ministries. We can have a good structure. We can have resources. We can have all that stuff. But if at the heart of the church, we're not truly caring for one another as God has cared for us, then we're not going to be healthy and other people are not going to be drawn to that either. We want to be a place where we genuinely care for each other and we do the work of the Lord as we are caring for one another. And that's how our relationships should be characterized. Now, the Bible joins together these ideas. The fatherhood of God, our adoption into his family, and our interconnectedness as brothers and sisters. Let me say that again. The Bible joins together these ideas. The fatherhood of God, our adoption into his family, and our interconnectedness as brothers and sisters. David Black was one of my professors in uh, seminary, uh, and he wrote this, and I'm going to give you this in closing. 
He said the New Testament uses several metaphors to depict the church. The church is a building, it's a bride, it's a body, it's a flock of sheep, it's a temple, it's a group of branches in a vineyard. But the most predominant picture of the church in the New Testament is family. God is our father. We are all brothers and sisters. We are the oikos, the family of God. And then he says this, unlike the other pictures of the church in the New Testament, family isn't a metaphor. We really are God's family. We really are his adopted children. You really are my siblings. We are heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. And this is the foundation of everything we believe about the church. When you pray with someone, walk with them, carry their burden, defend them, gently confront them, that's family. That's community. That's church. And then he says this, and wherever you find such a family, it is always a gift. That's the kind of church family that we want to be by God's grace. Let's bow our heads together as we pray. Fathers, we bow our heads before you today. We thank you that you are our father. We are your children adopted into your family and that we are brothers and sisters in Christ. I pray that as we receive this very practical instruction from Paul to Timothy serving at Ephesus, that we would be reminded of our responsibility, whether we're younger or older, men or women, uh, whatever our status in life is, I pray that we would take our role seriously and that you would help us to be a place where uh, our family is healthy. Our spiritual family is focused on what it needs to be focused on moving in the right direction. And God, we're an imperfect people. Uh, we all at times are difficult to deal with. And I thank you that our brothers and sisters are, are many times very patient and loving along the way helping us and encouraging us to continue on in our faith in Christ. And God, I pray that this church would not just be satisfied either with uh, the relationships that are existing, but we would understand that you are building your family. And you're building your family from among people of every tribe, tongue, and nation. That all the peoples of the earth are being gathered in uh, to Lord a larger family, all who would put their faith in Jesus Christ are being gathered into an eternal family that we're a part of. And we look forward to someday being around the throne in heaven and bringing praise and glory to your great name and to the Lamb who was slain because of your worthiness, Lord, because of your glory. And I pray in the meantime that we would be faithful in the gospel and that we would be faithful as a church that you would protect us from the enemy, uh, protect us from ourselves, and Lord, draw us closer together. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.